Well, there's something for everybody in today's reading from John chapter 3. We have uh, an image that conjures up a Led Zeppelin song, Stairway to Heaven. We have uh, an image that reminds us of the, uh, the serpent's pole, the uh, doctor's office, the old school you know, image. Um, and uh, we have uh, John 3.16, which for some of us will always be associated with the goalposts and end zone. Um, <laughs> but I did find it kind of funny that in this one passage, there are these three images that are somehow part of our pop culture world. Um, I don't really know how to explain that, and you probably don't really care that much that I just mentioned that, but I uh, did find it amusing on the way to church this morning. Uh, let's read the passage, because... This passage is, um, is, not, is not amusing in that sense. This passage is life-giving, and um, we're going to try to unpack it and understand uh, why it's life-giving. Now there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with that person. And Jesus answered him, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Nicodemus said to him, How can anyone be born after having grown old? Can one enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. What is born of the flesh is flesh, and what is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be astonished that I said to you, you must be born from above. The wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. And Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered, are you a teacher of Israel, and you do, not, you do not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and testify to what we have seen, yet you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you about earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man, and just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Open our ears, O Lord, that we would hear the gospel. May your Holy Spirit be our teacher. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. What a fascinating encounter we witnessed today in our text from John's gospel. Before we say anything else about it, though, I want us to have a sense of who this character Nicodemus is. He's a Pharisee. 
one of the people who was a religious leader of his day. But he was not just any Pharisee. He was on the senior leadership team, if you will, um, of the temple in Jerusalem. He was a member of the council that was called the Sanhedrin. Now these folks on the Sanhedrin, they were almost always wealthy and powerful and influential. Nicodemus was not just a religious teacher with authority. Nicodemus was an aristocrat. And when we take the measure of Nicodemus, we should immediately be curious about why he's coming to see Jesus in the first place. We get a bit of a clue when John tells us when Nicodemus comes to see Jesus. He doesn't want to call attention to the visit. So he comes under the cover of nightfall. Comes under the cover of nightfall. Is this because he doesn't want his colleagues and his friends to see him going to see Jesus? I think that's what John wants us to infer from that editorial comment. But is Nicodemus coming to see Jesus to sign up to be a disciple? Mm, Not really. I don't think so from the rest of the text. It would seem that the clues leave us with the likely scenario that Nicodemus had something in his heart that was kindled, something in his mind that made him curious enough to go see Jesus and try to offer some support in some way. Context helps here, okay? Because what happens right before Nicodemus comes to see Jesus is Jesus, which is often referred to as the cleansing of the temple, Jesus shuts down the temple. Now, this would be like, I have no idea why this comes to mind. (laughs) This would be like going to Disney World, right? This is like kind of a goofy analogy, but this is like going to Disney World and expecting that everything is going to be coming along, and all of a sudden all the power goes out. And it's like you're thinking, nothing's going to happen here. (laughs) Well, Jesus shuts down the temple in that way. He takes out whip of scourges. He drives away the people selling the animals to be sacrificed. It's an enacted, enacted parable that points forward to the destruction of the temple. Jesus does not make any friends among temple leadership on the day that he shuts down the temple. They're confused, they're angry, they're upset. Okay, that's right before our um, narrative this morning. Right before it. And then, one of those leaders that presumably was called aside real fast, right? Did you see what this guy just did? Who is he? Find out. Can you get the temple police ready quick enough to arrest him? Evidently not. Nicodemus is probably in that group that gets called out real quick to survey the situation. 
And then we find Nicodemus under the cover of nightfall going to see Jesus. Jesus had just made a lot of enemies among Nicodemus' friends, and yet it seems that John gives us the clue that Nicodemus comes in a friendly way to see Jesus. But what kind of friend does Nicodemus want to be to Jesus? I would suggest that it's more than likely that Nicodemus absolutely 100% sincerely meant the complimentary things that he says to Jesus. We can tell, in so many words he says, we can tell that God is upon you. Nobody could do the things that you're doing unless God is upon you. I think Nicodemus, this is not rhetorical flourish, okay? This is not flattery. I think Nicodemus 100% means what he's saying to Jesus. But the thing about Nicodemus is, he is a man who's used to being in charge. He is a man who's used to setting the agenda. And he comes to Jesus, and I think he fully expects to take charge of the situation. To, in some sense, in a friendly way, take charge of Jesus. I think Nicodemus comes to Jesus, and what he's about to say is something like, right after he says, we can tell that God is with you, I think Nicodemus is just about to say after that, and I've come to help you maximize your ministry. <laughs> but that whole thing in the temple yesterday, <laughs> don't ever do anything like that again. <laughs> and I think he's coming alongside Jesus trying to say, here's how you can come along with us and join what we're doing and help out. But he doesn't get to say anything like that because Jesus takes control of the conversation. And Jesus stops Nicodemus in his tracks before he can say anything else. Now, before I go on and try to work with you um, on understanding what's going on in the rest of this interaction, I want to say something right out of the gate. Jesus loves Nicodemus. Now, you're saying... That's not in my Bible. And you're right, it's not. That phrase is not in your Bible. How do I know that Jesus loves Nicodemus? There are some things that are so fundamental about who Jesus is and who Jesus shows us that God is that we always have to have them in our mind, whenever there's an interaction going on between Jesus and another human being, the first thing that should be in our minds is Jesus loves who he's talking to. Because that's who Jesus is, and that's who Jesus shows us who God is. Jesus is concerned about human beings. Now, does that mean that Jesus doesn't care what people do? No. Jesus opposes us when we do things that harm us. Jesus opposes us when we do things that harm other people. 
But Jesus does so only out of love. In fact, Jesus opposes Nicodemus in this conversation. But the controlling idea that we need to have in our mind, because there's some back and forth, well, mainly (laughs) Jesus talking, but, you know, I think the tension in the air is around the fact that Nicodemus doesn't understand. Nicodemus is confused. But the thing that we need to keep in mind is Jesus, let me just say it this way. There's something about this encounter where Nicodemus feels safe. Now that's language from today's world that's a little bit hard to reapply back then, but I think it's absolutely true. Nicodemus feels safe around Jesus, even though Jesus will have some hard things to say to Nicodemus. Why do I think Nicodemus feels safe around Jesus? Because as we see a little bit later in the homily, Nicodemus keeps turning up. He keeps turning up. He turns up in a way that makes him always a friendly character to Jesus. It's something for all of us, I think, to contemplate. And I realize I'm interrupting the flow of trying to get into the narrative here, but it's really important, you know, this idea that that um, every time we think about Jesus in an interaction with a human being, that Jesus loves that human being, because it reminds us of, um, of what we're here for, you know, extending the mission of Jesus in the life of the church. Caleb, our former associate pastor, in one of his last sermons, he preached like three last sermons, bless his heart, because... Um, it was a, a challenging time um, for our family with my, when my dad was really sick. Uh, so Caleb thought he was preaching the last sermon, and then he thought he was preaching the last sermon, and finally, I think number three was his last sermon. Somewhere in there, he was talking about you know, things he would miss about grace, and he said, I think I'll miss Bob quoting Rowan Williams over and over again. <laughs> this one particular quote that he gave an example of was that The church is here on this earth to, among other things, remind people of how precious a human being is. How precious a human being is. What would it be like if each of us, every morning, asked God to help us during the day, every interaction that we have, Remind people of how precious it is that they are a human being and loved by God, made in God's image, on and on. Okay, back to the narrative. It's a tricky interaction to get our heads around. Nicodemus has a hard time tracking with what Jesus is saying. And he is actually a lot more familiar... (laughs) than we are with the Old Testament illusions that Jesus uses to make his point. On top of that, there's some things in the narrative that will only become clear after the resurrection. So we're not only overhearing a conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, but we're overhearing a conversation between John's gospel and the first generation of Christians who hear it in the post-resurrection church. 
So it is challenging, but let's give it a shot. First, language about the Spirit in a second birth. Well, that's all over the place in the Old Testament prophets. God telling Israel through the prophets that God will do something that is amazing in the future. Amazing in a categorically different way. Here's one such passage that Nicodemus would have been familiar with from Ezekiel 36. I will sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. A new heart I will give you, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove from your body the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Nicodemus would have been familiar with that. Then we have the image of the Son of Man descending. Now that's a reference to what is commonly referred to as Jacob's ladder. Jacob, the patriarch who's the father of God's ancient people Israel, um, this incident that happens in his life that Jesus is referring to here, uh, get this, it comes right after Jacob has stolen his brother's birthright. He's stolen Esau's birthright. And his mother says, basically to him, you must run away for a while because Esau has said he's going to kill you. (laughs) And so we find Jacob on the run, and we find him very unsettled, very scared, very lonely, and he falls asleep, and he has this dream that dream that we refer to as Jacob's Ladder. And angels are ascending and descending a ladder, and then God says to Jacob, basically, it's going to be okay. Now, this is somebody who just stole his brother's birthright, but promises were made to him that God was going to do something with his life after all, And that something was going to be to found a nation out of him that would inherit those extravagant promises made to the patriarch, Abraham, that God would use this ancient people to bring good news to everyone in the whole world and that the descendants would be so numerous that you couldn't count them. But Jacob's on the run because Esau's going to kill him. And then God brings this image to him in the dream and these words to him in the dream basically says to him, don't worry. (laughs) It's going to be okay. And Jesus has already used this image once in John's gospel. When he calls Nathaniel, you know, he comes to call Nathaniel to be a disciple in chapter one. And he says to Nathaniel, basically, I saw you and he didn't see him because he wasn't there. (laughs) And Nathaniel knows that. And, and he knows his name, and he says, how do you know who I am? And Jesus says, oh, you think that's something? You're going to see angels descending and ascending, basically referring to his ministry. That connection, that portal to heaven, Jesus says, that's going to be me. I'm going to be the one. I'm going to be the connection between heaven and earth. I'm going to bring God down here. And all those promises to God's ancient people You know, when Jesus says that, he's saying, this is going to happen in me. And so Nicodemus, keep in mind, 
He knows passages like that from Ezekiel. He knows that story so well. You know, that story of the Jacob's ladder, ascending and descending. He understands that it's a picture of God coming to keep God's promises in this world. And then there's the serpent on a pole. That story from Numbers. Jesus invokes that and says that somehow that points to the cross. Nicodemus's head is swimming right about now, if yours isn't. You know, I have to tell you, this, this sermon is one for the books, man. I mean, we got a lot in it, right? My head was swimming when I was reviewing my notes this morning. Um, but remember, Jesus says to Nicodemus, you're a teacher in Israel. You know about this stuff. You really do. If you stop and think and listen to me, you know about this stuff. And what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus is, if you stop and think hard enough, you're going to realize that what the Old Testament said that God was going to do in the future was not just something new, but it was something categorically new. And what Jesus is saying is, I'm the categorically new. I'm the categorically new. Basically what Jesus does is Jesus describes the Old Testament in terms that can only mean that in Jesus as a person, in Jesus as a human being, the chapter turns. And it doesn't turn into a new chapter. It turns into a new book. In Jesus, redemptive history goes into out of one chapter, but not just into another chapter, into a whole book. Now, these Old Testament allusions that we just touched on, they're far removed and they're difficult for us to track with. For Nicodemus, they were not far removed, and he would have connected with each one of them. He would have understood, in some sense, what Jesus was saying, but at the same time, he wasn't ready to understand all of it. The Spirit would have to do that for him, like Jesus said. You know, the Spirit does what the Spirit does. He's just trying to get Nicodemus in the right posture to receive an opening of his eyes and an opening of his heart. Um, I think Nicodemus goes home with more questions that he came with. I think he goes home and he does not sleep well that night. I just kind of don't think that was the best night's sleep that Nicodemus was going to have. But Nicodemus shows up, as I mentioned earlier, two more times in John's Gospel. And each time Jesus shows up, I mean, Nicodemus shows up in John's gospel each of the two times after this one. <coughs> he's shown and presented as a character who cares about Jesus, who cares about Jesus. In John 7, he uses his clout with his colleagues to argue against the temple police arresting Jesus. Jesus is in the temple again. He's causing trouble again. And the temple police want to arrest Jesus. Jesus evades them. And the temple 
uh, leadership people get together. And Nicodemus, you can read about it yourself, but he uses influence to stop all that. The next time we meet Nicodemus, the third time, um, he is with Joseph of Arimathea. And he's coming to tend the body of Jesus at Jesus' burial. Joseph of Arimathea is described as being a secret disciple of Jesus because he was afraid of the Jewish leadership, what they would think. Nicodemus is simply referred to as being the one who had come to see Jesus at night. And it's Nicodemus who spends a small fortune on 100 pounds of burial spices for Jesus' body. How did Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus know each other? How do they know each other? Joseph is described as a secret disciple of Jesus. Could it be that that descriptor would be just as true of Nicodemus? I don't know how they would meet up under such dangerous circumstances and take on that mission unless that were true. Perhaps Nicodemus had been a secret disciple all along. Nicodemus is a sympathetic figure presented as such in John's gospel. Not because he had all the right answers, but because he had all the right questions. And he was a sincere seeker an honest seeker. After Jesus is raised from the dead, Nicodemus has his answers. So do we. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, thanks be to God for the gospel. Amen.